I'd ask if you could please um, stand with me at reverence for the word of our Lord as we pray together. Sorry, as we read the scripture, then we'll pray. Uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. Luke 19, 28 to 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage of Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where you are, and where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as, they had, as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and as he was drawing near already on the, the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of, of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and will surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. May he add its blessings for our good and for his glory. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we approach your word this morning, may you help us to see what, what took place on that day as King Jesus approached the city of Jerusalem. Father, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus for who he is, and I pray you would help us to see our own hearts, to see whether we would be among those who would be rejoicing and would, would keep on rejoicing? Or whether we'd be like the Pharisees grumbling against Jesus, or whether we'd be like those who, who rejoiced for a time and then proved to be those who reject Jesus, just like the Pharisees. Lord, I pray that through the proclamation of your word today, you would grant life, that we would all be among those who would rejoice and will rejoice at the coming of Jesus. Help us, Lord, to see these things and to respond to these things with love and faith and worship. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 
over 60 years ago on a sunny day in June in London, in England, an intricately carved golden carriage drawn by eight powerful Windsor gray horses traveled towards Westminster Abbey. The procession was led by hundreds of foot soldiers and mounted cavalry. cavalry. The streets were lined with hundreds of soldiers and tens of thousands of cheering people as the church bells pealed. Everyone was gathered for the purpose of crowning Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Windsor as Queen Elizabeth II, monarch of the United Kingdom and all the Commonwealth realms. It was a moment of great pomp and pageantry, rich with symbolism. The procession arrived at Westminster Abbey. Elizabeth entered the chapel of King Henry VII, flanked by bishops of the Church of England with six pages carrying the train of the Queen's robe amidst a fanfare of trumpets and soldiers on either side. The Archbishop of Canterbury presented to her the people who cried, God save Queen Elizabeth. And she took her seat on King Edward's chair, the throne upon which kings and queens of England had been crowned for over 700 years. She solemnly swore to govern the people of the Commonwealth according to the laws of the state, the laws of God, and the true profession of the gospel, and to maintain the Protestant Reformed religion and of the Church of England. With that, she knelt before the altar to solemnify her oath, kissed the Bible, and swore, the things that I have promised I will perform, so help me God. The people broke into singing, God save the Queen. A representative of the Church of Scotland presented the Bible to the Queen, and, she, and he said, O gracious Queen, to keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and the government of Christian princes, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. He continued, Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Following by communion service, she was anointed with the sign of the cross on her hands and her breasts and her head. In one of her hands was placed a sword, the sword of justice. In the other was placed an orb under a cross representing Christ's rule in the world. Then she was given a rod, the rod of equity and mercy. And finally she was crowned and the people cried again, God save the queen. And the archbishop declared, God crown you with glory and righteousness that having a faith and manifold fruit of good works, you may obtain the crown of everlasting life by the gift of him whose kingdom endures forever. Amen. While Queen Elizabeth rode in on a golden chariot or gold, drawn by eight powerful horses, King Jesus rode in on a lowly donkey. While Queen Elizabeth was surrounded by soldiers who would give their lives to protect her, King Jesus would be killed by soldiers. Queen Elizabeth was crowned with a golden crown by a religious leadership who celebrated her rule. King Jesus was crowned with a crown of thorns by a religious leadership who hated his rule. While the citizens of England celebrated the, the, queen, the, the coronation of Queen Elizabeth, the citizens of Israel will reject the rule of King Jesus. The crowds before 
Queen Elizabeth cried, God save the queen. The crowds before King Jesus will cry, crucify him. But even in apparent defeat, this is where the, the situation of each monarch is not as it seems. Here we are over 60 years later, and it's obvious that, that Queen Elizabeth's reign will not last much longer. She is now 95 years of age. But the reign of King Jesus is eternal. Queen Elizabeth's successor is an adulterer and unworthy of the title king. The words about God and his law, I'd be surprised if, if, if Prince Charles at, at his coronation would not be struck by lightning as he declares those words. But King Jesus has no successor as he reigns eternally as the Son of God and he is the only one who is worthy. Queen Elizabeth's dominion has fallen on hard times as England has crumbled from her former glory. But the dominion of King Jesus is progressing from glory to glory. In our passage this morning, King Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. And as he's about to enter the city, we're, we're entering the third and final section of Luke's gospel account. The journey that began back in Luke 9, 51 is finally coming to an end. Remember, it was only a six-day journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, but Jesus took over a year to get there. And Luke took 10 chapters to describe it. Jerusalem has loomed heavily on the horizon the whole time, as Luke repeatedly reminded us that it is Jerusalem that is Jesus' destination. The event before us this morning is recorded in all four gospel accounts, but Luke includes an additional but related incident. The heading in the ESV Bible, and probably most of the Bibles we have here, reads the triumphal entry, but as I explained to the children, this, this is not really a, a, a triumphal entry. Because again, this is not really an entry. And in many respects, it isn't really triumphal. Luke 19, 28 to 44, carries us to the very brink of the city. But unlike the other gospel accounts, it leaves us on the outside, on the verge of Jesus' entry. This is, this is kind of a, a hinged passage, elaborating on the theme of, of those who reject Jesus and his kingship, while also pointing ahead to the events that will take place in just a week's time on Calvary. This is really a fitting end to, to, to this journey which began with the rejection, the rejection of the Samaritans, and ends with the rejection of Jesus' own people. With the Pharisees grumbling and, and, and the prophecy of the rejection of the people of the city. It's also a fitting beginning because, because the Pharisees are about to hand Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified. And the people will be complicit in this. Yet even still, this passage contains great joy. So, so there's a mixture of, of celebration and of profound grief. Jesus' disciples and, and the crowds are going to rejoice at the coming of Jesus. But their joy is going to be short-lived. It's going to give way to the Pharisees' rebuke 
and Jesus laments over the people's rejection and their coming destruction. So then our passage we see in verses 28 to 35, the disciples' preparation. In verses 36 to 40, we see the people's celebration. And then in verses 41 to 44, we see the king's lamentation. Once again, we're going to see that, that Jesus is a polarizing figure. As his people in this passage are divided between those who rejoice in Jesus and those who reject him. So first of all then, verses 28 to 35, the disciples' preparation. Luke begins saying, when Jesus had said these things, Luke is here tying this passage with what has just come before. With the parable of the Minas, where, where Jesus had emphasized the call to faithfulness for disciples who await his return and the coming and the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, and, and also as a, as a reminder of the, the, the condemnation of those who reject him. We'll see that shortly. This is a key part of this, is a, a warning about, about the coming justice that the king is going to execute at his return. There was a large group of disciples that were traveling with Jesus as he approached Jerusalem. The, the people of those who were real disciples had grown and, and were, they were following him. They're going before and behind and, and surrounding him. As Jesus approached Jerusalem, and he, he, Jesus went on ahead. He was, he was going up from, from Jericho to Jerusalem, about 30 kilometers away. It was a steady climb. Jericho was 258 meters below sea level, and Jerusalem is 754 meters above sea level, so it's about a 1,000-meter climb. And once again, Luke shows us his skill as a storyteller as he makes time seem to, to slow to a crawl, as he describes the details of Jesus' approach to the city. So here, again, he, he describes Jesus as, as going up to the city in verses 28 and, and 37 as drawing near in verse 42. He drew near and he saw the city. Again, Luke is, is slowing things down to emphasize how important these events actually are. So Luke gives us Bethphage and, and Bethany and the Mount of Olives, Olives as, as landmarks that are, are quite close to the city. The location of, of Bethphage is is unknown, but, but Bethany is a town about three kilometers away from Jerusalem on the, the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives, the side facing away from Jerusalem. And eight, the Mount of Olives is at, at 826 meters, a little higher than the Temple Mount. And Jesus was, again, he was just across the Kidron Valley from the eastern wall of Jerusalem. They're getting very close. John 12 includes the detail of Jesus' stop in Bethany where, where Mary anoints him with expensive perfume to prepare him for burial. And Jesus, Luke tells us, sends two of his disciples ahead with very specific instructions. Go into the village in front of you, and when you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you're untying it, you, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. 
Matthew and John say very clearly that it was a donkey colt. And Matthew also includes the detail that it was, was a donkey along with its mother. And, and it really makes sense given the fact that this was a donkey that had, had never been ridden, had never been broken, that the, the mother went along with it to keep the animal calm and, and to do what it was told <clears throat> as, as Jesus would, would mount this animal. The fact that it was an unridden donkey points to the fact that it was, it was set apart for, for holy use. And obviously, the, the owners of a donkey wouldn't just let it walk off with, with strangers. So, so Jesus told the disciples to say the Lord has need of it, that this would satisfy. And sure enough, it happened exactly as Jesus said it would happen. There are some who say that, that this was simply prearranged, that this was like a, a code word to tell them that that okay, when, when, when my disciples come to, to ask for, to get the donkey, say, the, the, that they will say to you, the Lord has need of it, then you can let it go and we'll return it when we're done. But I don't think that's actually the case. Because the phrase, just as he told them, points to this, at, points to this as the fulfillment of prophecy. This reveals Jesus' prophetic insight that he, also that he has control over the events surrounding his entry into Jerusalem and his crucifixion. That he is really in control. That this event is necessary, that it, it must take place, and it must take place exactly how and exactly when Jesus says it must take place. He also has control over the timing. So the disciples bring the donkey colt to Jesus, and they put their, their cloaks on it, kind of like a like saddle, and then they actually put him on the donkey. Now this picture might seem a little bit strange to you. right? We, we've seen how Queen Elizabeth entered into to London and, and went to Westminster Abbey on a, pulled by, by eight large horses. But now we see Jesus mounting a donkey. We'd, we'd expect a, a king in this era to be at least drawn by a chariot or, or riding a war horse. But, but it's very important. These details are very telling. This image of Jesus riding a donkey points to Jesus as the Davidic king. In 1 Kings 1, 33 and 34, you don't need to turn there, but we see, we see David's son Solomon riding a donkey as he is about to be anointed as, pre, as king over Israel by the priest Zadok. So this is a picture that points to, to, to Jesus as the, the, as the greater son of David. But even more powerful than that, this, this mounting of, of Jesus on, onto a donkey is a direct fulfillment of messianic prophecy regarding the Messiah as a humble king. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy as he approaches Jerusalem on this donkey. So in doing this, Jesus is proclaiming himself king, just as he had done in the 
parable of the meanest, but now he's doing it visibly for every eye to see. But what the people didn't understand is that Jesus was also proclaiming himself as a man of peace. That this is, he's not coming on a war horse. He will later on. But your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and specifically a colt full of a donkey, just like what we're seeing here. He's, he's saying that he is a man of peace. He is, is coming as a peacemaker. The people wanted a political messiah. But Jesus wasn't coming to make war on the Romans. Jesus was coming to make war on sin. And the massive significance of this was, was, was not clear to the disciples prior to the events that would take place. But John 12, 16 explains that his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So after the events, they saw, oh, wow, we really... We really witnessed the, the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 and the fullness of what it means. So the disciples have, had explicitly followed Jesus' instructions. They, they had collected the donkey colt and prepared Jesus for it. And, and imagine the, their anticipation as they seated him upon this donkey, even though they didn't fully understand what was taking place. They, they knew that this was big. So then in verses 36 to 40, we see the people's celebration. So now as Jesus rode the donkey towards Jerusalem, the people threw their cloaks on the ground. I, Howard Marshall says that it's like they're giving him the red carpet treatment. And John, in his gospel account, tells us that they also waved palm branches. Luke omits this detail. With the focus of Luke's narrative being being to relay the events of Jesus' life and ministry to the, the Gentile Theophilus, he omits details that, that wouldn't have been meaningful to a Gentile. But the Jews would have known full well what the palm branches meant. Palm branches were a symbol of Jewish nationalism stemming from the Maccabean Revolt 200 years earlier, when the Jews had defeated their, their Syrian oppressors. So it was like the, the Jews in waving palm branches were, were waving the national flag before their Roman occupiers. John also tells us that the group of the people who were, were celebrating was not just made up of disciples. There were others as well. He, he tells us that the, the Passover was approaching. So the road to Jerusalem would have, would have, been, would have, been, would have been crowded with people who were pilgrims and were heading towards the city for the, the celebration of the Passover. And John adds that, that many that followed Jesus were motivated by the recent sign of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So, so there were real disciples here, but there were many others as well who were, were kind of caught up in what was taking place. Luke tells us again in verse 37 that Jesus was drawing near. And so he rode down the slopes of the Mount of Olives, approaching the Kidron Valley. I've stood on this look in this spot. It looks nothing now like it did then. But it's still amazing to be there. I think this is, this is the place where Jesus rode down. And, and from that spot, you, could, you can see very clearly. It's not that far from, from the, the, the height of the Mount of Olives. You can see very clearly the, the gate, the eastern gate of the city. 
where the temple would have been. Of course, it's gone now. But at that time, just on the other side of the, the narrow Kidron Valley was the eastern wall again of, of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. Jesus and the crowds were, were within sight of the temple, the center of worship in Israel, the place where the, the sacrifices were made for the people's sins, with the, the Ark of the Covenant within the Holy of Holies. The moment for which Jesus had come was rapidly approaching. And so the people burst out, praising God. Luke says that the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the works, mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Again, this wasn't just disciples, but this was the whole crowd doing this. The people were anticipating in this the moment of Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem as well, but for very different reasons. They were filled with joy as Jesus approached Jerusalem, though they did not yet understand why Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Again, many of the crowd were, were likely just swept up in the fervor. Many were expecting him to deliver them from the Romans. But the disciples praised God for the miracles that they had seen. They'd seen Jesus accomplish many miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus had said this from the very beginning in Luke 4, 18 and 19. This is what he is coming to do. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. His whole ministry was the fulfillment of that mission. Again and again and again and again, Jesus had demonstrated God's power through the Holy Spirit. The blind received their sight, the lame walk, lepers, lepers were cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, Luke 7, 22. And so the disciples had seen all of these things. But through much of Jesus' ministry, he had generally removed himself from the public eye. There were, were, were some who, who saw these things, but, but this, this, it was not visible to, to many. Jesus didn't want to bring things to a head before the time. If, if Jesus had, had done all kinds of, of powerful miracles in front of everybody, then they would have tried to forcefully make him a king. But the time was not yet. Yet now, as Jesus was, was before the city, the time has come. Again, this was the moment towards which his whole life and ministry had pointed. It was time for him to die. The Lamb of God was about to redeem his people with his blood. The bridegroom was about to give up his life for his bride. And as Jesus approached Jerusalem and this, at this time, there's nothing, nothing secret here. Jesus was surrounded by throngs of rejoicing people as he approached the eastern gate of the city. He rode publicly into the city. He would publicly overturn tables and, and cast out the money changers. He would publicly teach in the temple precincts. He would publicly condemn the Pharisees. He would be publicly brought before the Jewish and Roman authorities. And in a few days' time, he would be publicly crucified. 
And after a few days later, he would be publicly resurrected. In this moment, people proclaimed, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting here Psalm 118, 26. It's a, a messianic psalm. It finds its fulfillment in Christ as it describes the king leading pilgrims to the temple and being welcomed by the priests upon his return. Now, that was partially fulfilled here, but the priests were not welcoming him. The people continued, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is an echo of the proclamation of the archangel Gabriel at the birth announcement of Jesus in Luke 2:14. Glory to God in the highest and peace among earth, uh, peace among those with whom he is pleased. But notice here the crowds speak of peace in heaven. Now this word that is translated peace, you probably know that the Jewish word for peace is shalom, and, and it's this this had very strong connotations in the Hebrew culture. It speaks of a peace in the heart and peace between people, but ultimately, shalom speaks of peace with God. Though not all were at peace. Verse 39, some Pharisees were among the crowd. And so their presence here provides a a sharp contrast to the rejoicing of the crowds. And again, Luke is so good at, at telling these stories. The disciples said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. So again, their presence and their, their, and their comments are a contrast, but they're also an ominous sign. The Pharisees have been rejecting Jesus since the beginning of his ministry, and now they're rejecting him towards the end. Their animosity is only going to grow as he enters the city and continues to teach. Nothing has changed in the hearts of these Pharisees. They did not want Jesus to be proclaimed as Messiah. They did not want Jesus to be proclaimed as King. I'm sure in part they did not want Jesus to to stir up the Romans against them, but ultimately it was a rejection of Jesus himself. They are the ones in the parable of the Minas who did not want the King to rule over them. Just a week later, they're going to hand him over to the Romans in an attempt to solve both problems. They, like Satan, will incite the crowds against Jesus and will call for his execution. But Jesus replies to these Pharisees, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The people can't be silent. The disciples, with with all that they've seen, you you couldn't do anything to silence these people. But even if they were, the stones would cry out. Creation knows who Jesus is, even if the Jewish religious leadership doesn't. And so the rocks, in this sense, are more alive than the spiritually dead Pharisees. Can you cry out and praise to King Jesus? If you don't, the rocks will. If you are spiritually alive, you can't help but praise the name of Jesus. So now in verses 41 to 44, we see the king's 
lamentation. Again, Luke tells us that Jesus drew near the city. And as Jesus approached, while all of these people are rejoicing, Jesus wept. He wept over the city. And these aren't discreet tears. The, the word translated wept means, means sobbing or wailing. And Luke is the only one who, who records this event for us. Again, this is a sharp contrast to the response of the crowds. They are rejoicing, but Jesus is weeping. I, I wonder what was going through their minds at that moment. And again, we see Jesus prophesying. He didn't just prophesy about the donkey. He's prophesying about bigger things than that. These are the tears of the one who knows the rejection that is in the hearts of the people and the one who knows the consequences that will come for their rejection. Theologian D.L.T. calls this a searing oracle of doom. This isn't just a lamentation. This is also a condemnation. Jesus declares, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Do you know the things that make for peace? Are you sitting here with peace in your heart? Or with the peace in your heart that comes from peace with God? I've had people many times tell me as they had made a decision to do something sinful that I have peace about it. Nowhere in the scriptures are you ever told to, that a sense of peace means that you're necessarily doing the right thing. There's many people that confuse peace of conscience with peace with God. Many people have peace in their conscience because through their habitual sin, they have seared their conscience, so their conscience has gotten quieter and quieter and quieter. They might have peace in their conscience, but they have no peace with God. So let me rephrase the question. Do you have peace with God? The only way you can have peace with God is walking before him in repentance and faith. And this is not a one-time event that you did way back there. This is something that you're doing today. Are you walking in repentance and faith? It is only the one who is doing this who truly has peace with God that has been purchased by the blood of Christ. That the Father poured out his wrath on his Son place of his people's sin. That's what peace with God coughed. But these people didn't know the things that make for peace. These things were now hidden from their eyes. Jesus knew that the rejoicing of the crowd would be short-lived. He knows what's coming soon from the people of Jerusalem that they would shout out, crucify him. He knows that the people didn't or wouldn't understand the times they were living in. They didn't or wouldn't recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. They didn't or wouldn't accept the peace with God that Jesus came to offer. 
The name of the city, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, means city of peace or city of shalom. But there would be no shalom for Jerusalem, at least not yet. And Jesus weeps over this fact, over the rejection and the condemnation that is coming because of the rejection. And Jesus' tears demonstrate that he's not indifferent to their rejection. The poet Wordsworth wrote, Christ here proves his twofold nature by shedding tears as man for what he foretold as God. Christ's compassion extends even to those who are his enemies. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 33, 11. Now we saw Jesus lament over Jerusalem back in Luke 13, 34, and 35. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, that's an offer of repentance there. It's an offer that they would be saved. If they were to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a warning to them. But they rejected the warning. And now it's too late. The door is closed for many of the residents of Jerusalem. And Jesus knows what they're going to do and it grieves him. Friends, Jesus knows what you're going to do as well. Jesus has perfect knowledge of, of everything you do, everything you say, and everything you even you think. And everything you will do and say and think. Psalm 139, before a word is on my tongue, you know it altogether. This is a comfort to those who are truly at peace with God. But it is a terror to unbelievers. Well, at least it should be. Destruction is coming. In verses 43 and 44, Jesus describes what's going to happen to Jerusalem. The city is going to be devastated. Enemies will surround and, and barricade the city and will tear it down to the ground. Men and women and children will be slaughtered. Not one stone will be left upon another. Jesus is going to go into more detail about this in Luke 21. And all this is because they did not know the time of their visitation. What could have been a visitation for salvation is now a visitation for condemnation. And ultimately, a visitation for damnation. This was fulfilled in AD 70, when after the Jews rebelled, the Roman general and future Caesar Titus lay siege to Jerusalem. Historian Josephus refers to the siege works that fully surrounded Jerusalem. The city would be captured and sacked. The temple would be demolished. And many, many people would be killed. Jerusalem used to be a, bitty, a, a beautiful city. Its skyline was dominated by the magnificent temple. But not so today. As I said, I was, I was there about 10 or 12 years ago. And when you look at Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley today, the temple is no longer there. The skyline is now dominated by the grotesque Al-Aqsa Mosque 
with its golden dome of the rock, right on the spot where the temple used to stand. The eastern gate that Jesus entered used to be called the, the beautiful gate. It's been walled up. And on the slopes that lead up to the gate, there's a Muslim cemetery. In fact, if you go to the, the top of the, of the Mount of Olives, the whole western side, this is the side that faces the city, is a Jewish cemetery. So here you have a, a cemetery that is it's, it's this place where Jesus once rode down and rode back up the, the, the short height again to the, into the, the eastern gate and to the Temple Mount. It's, it's filled with dead men's bones. They walled up the gate. So what happened? How, how could that beautiful temple, the chief of the wonders of the ancient world, again, the, the center for worship in, of Yahweh, how could it be raised to the ground and how could a, a Muslim mosque take its place? How could God allow such a thing? It was because the people did not recognize this moment. They did not realize that King Jesus, God the Son, had arrived to bring peace, not to oust the Romans, but to bring peace between God and man. But their people refused Jesus. They refused peace with God. Instead, they received Titus and war with the Romans, who were really the sword of God's wrath. As Jesus rode down the slope of the Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem on a donkey colt. He did so as the king entering his throne city to the cheers of the crowds and to the sneers of the Pharisees. And those sneers of the Pharisees would spread and would infect many in the city so that Jesus' own people would hand him over to the Romans, shouting, crucify him. The Romans will kill him. But his death will bring victory as his death defeats sin and death for all of his people, for all of those who truly have faith in him. Jesus will rise, so Jesus rose from the grave on the third day and would continue to minister on earth for another 40 days until he ascends bodily from the Mount of Olives again in Acts 1. An angelic messenger declares that Jesus will return one day just as he has departed. That just as he has departed from the Mount of Olives bodily, he will return bodily to the Mount of Olives. The prophet Zechariah proclaims the speaking of Christ's return that, that on this day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east and west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount will move northward and one half of the valley will move southward, Zechariah 14.4. This will happen at Jesus' return. He's once again going to descend upon the Mount of Olives. He's once again going to cross the Kidron Valley. He's once again going to enter through the eastern gate. I'm sure that a wall of bricks will not stop him. This may happen soon. and every enemy will be defeated. 
Will you be among those who rejoice on that day? Or will you be among those who will be gnashing your teeth in anger and rebellion against Jesus on that day? Will you bow before Jesus in worship? Or will you bow before him in abject terror? It all depends upon your response to Jesus now in this life. Every enemy is going to be defeated. Every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2.11 Do you understand the times that you are living in? King Jesus will return at the appointed time. Are you prepared for the king's return? Will you be among those who celebrate or will you be among those for whom Jesus laments as you receive his condemnation? Again, Jesus is the dividing line. Your response to him will determine whether you were with him in eternity or separated from him forever in a Christless eternity in the punishments of hell. May God work in our hearts through the power of his spirit so that we all, among those who celebrate, for the glory of his name and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you that in the fulfillment of your word, you came into your city just as you had promised you would, just as your word had promised that you would. Even as we'll look at these events next week as you, you cleanse the temple upon your entry to the city. Lord, I pray that, that you would help us to be among those who rejoice at your return. Lord Jesus, we look forward to your return. Help us to anticipate even more. Help us, Lord, to live faithful lives in the midst of this wicked generation. Help us to know the times in which we live and that it is, it is paramount that we live before you and walk before you in faith. Lord, help us, I pray, to shine your light in this dark world that we'd have many opportunities and would make the most of those opportunities to, pro to proclaim the gospel for the glory of your name. For we want to see many, many who are currently living as your enemies to become your sons and daughters for the glory of your name. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come and that you would come quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.